American politics has always had a dark side. But what happened in the tiny mining town of Calares in Pennsylvania on November 5th, 1934, that wasn't just dark, it was downright evil. Five men were killed and another 26 men, women, and children were injured. It remains one of the bloodiest events in American political history. But I believe what makes the Calares massacre so stunning is that so few people are aware it ever actually happened. After this episode, you'll be one of the people who do know the story of Calares, and for all of our sakes, I truly hope you'll never forget it. Whether it's history, crime, or legend, Stephanie Hoover has that story. Perhaps the story of the Kellers massacre faded so quickly because it was overshadowed by a larger national quarrel. The United States was, in the 1930s, embroiled in one of the most heated policy debates ever waged, whether to keep and affirm FDR's New Deal programs or to reject and repeal them. By anyone's measure, Pennsylvania was a key state in both the 1932 and 34 elections, what we would now call a swing state. Everyone wanted to know, would it reject Roosevelt and his expensive social programs, or would it validate FDR's social safety net and plans to invigorate the economy? This social security measure gives at least some protection to 30 millions of our citizens who will reap direct benefits through unemployment compensation, through old age pensions, and through increased services for the protection of children and the prevention of ill health. National debates aside, the disputes in Calares, Klein Township, Schuylkill County were far more personal. The tiny coal town of less than 800 souls was deciding whether or not to allow nepotistic Republican boss Joe Bruno and his family to monopolize the positions of county detective, Justice of the Peace, school board director, public school teacher, tax collector, and bank director. Big Joe, as Bruno was known, ran Klein Township, and everyone knew it. He lent money for mortgages. He provided alcohol that up until a year earlier was illegal to make or consume. And the Brunos exerted influence over county commissioners. Joe Bruno was the closest thing to a king the people of Klein Township would ever know. But, as Calares had finally realized, the real power was in the hands of the voters, and that was the only power Joe actually feared. November 5, 1934 was election eve in every one of the 48 states in the nation except Maine, the residents of which had already voted back in September. Polling indicated that the Democrats enjoyed a consistent national lead running up to the election, but the race in Pennsylvania was expected to be tight. Everyone, Republicans, Democrats, newspapers, community groups, churches, urged voters to get out and do their civic duty. The state's voter registration topped 4 million names, the largest in history. 
Trending seemed to favor the Democrats, whose registration had increased over the previous two years, while their opponents had declined. Only half of the state's precincts would vote using machines. Nearly 4,000 polling places were still using paper ballots. Newspaper offices were the only source for live election results, but even that depended on location. In Delaware County, the Chester Times told readers it would broadcast election results from its building by loudspeaker. Editors predicted that since the Philly metro area voted primarily by machine, results would be available early. More rural publications also invited the public to visit or call its office to learn election results, but they warned that these calls should be made after 9 o'clock on election night since tallying of votes was expected to be a long and tedious affair. In Calaire's, the evening of November 5th was cool and dark. Emboldened by the strides the party was making nationally and by their belief that they had won the still-contested 1933 local elections, the Democrats of Klein Township felt good about their chances. Both parties held Election Eve rallies. The Dems met in neighboring McAdoo. The Republicans met in Calaire's in Joe Bruno's Pool Hall Come Party headquarters, If Joe sensed defeat, he didn't show it publicly. But behind the scenes, there were rumblings about his growing anger. Some said he'd been making threats toward the Democrats. Privately, he must have doubted whether his machine could withstand another close or stolen election. Around 9 p.m. that evening, someone suggested a parade. Democrats and Bruno opponents turned out by the dozens, As was the custom of the day, men wore suits and hats, and women wore their best dresses and heels. Though hastily planned, parade organizers did construct a basic formation. Young children would ride in the back of an open truck near the head of the parade. Men, women, and older children would march on foot. A standard bearer would lead the parade, carrying an American flag, and lanterns would light the way where streetlights did not. No one disagrees that the Democrats purposely marched past the Bruno home. Very few argue about what happened when they did. Only the Brunos deny the source of and reason for the gunfire. The intersection of Center and Fourth Streets in Calaire's is small. While writing my book about the Calaire's massacre, I stood in that intersection and tried to imagine being fired upon from every direction. The thought was horrifying. Even knowing that no one was targeting me from the windows above, I still fought an impulse to run. The Immaculate Conception Roman Catholic Church sits on the southeast corner of the intersection of Center and Fourth. Directly across the street on the southwest corner is the home Joe Bruno built. Joe's son, James, lived next door. Diagonally from Joe, on the northeast corner, sits the brick home and former drugstore owned by the Saladego family, who had recently switched political alliances. Yet the apartment above the little store that sold two-cent ice cream cones was rented by Paul Bruno, Joe Bruno's nephew. For Calaire's, the parade was a bit of good fun. 
Supportive townspeople packed the sidewalks. The cheerful procession headed up Center Street, which, at the lighted intersection with 4th Street, ran along Joe Bruno's property. Testimony varied as to how and when the shooting actually started. Some said it was Joe's nephew, Tony, who, while standing in Joe's front lawn, first fired a pistol into the crowd. Others said a shooter on Center Street, between the Saladego Drugstore and the Immaculate Conception Church, fired on the marchers as they turned to walk past Joe Bruno's house. Still others said it was Joe's son, James, who fired the first shots from his own front yard while screaming, What the hell are you people doing here? However it began, so many shots were fired in such rapid succession that the first callers to the police substation in Tamaqua reported machine gun fire in the tiny town of Kellairs. Officers manning the phones thought they were being pranked. Callers claimed that gunshots were coming from the home of County Detective Joe Bruno, but why would a detective open fire on his own unarmed townspeople? While police debated whether to act, the shooting continued. The first man to fall was Frank Fiorella. 20-gauge rifle pellets fractured his skull and pierced his brain. Young, fit football player John Goloski rushed to Fiorella's aid. Another volley of blasts broke out, and Goloski, too, fell. Dozens of shots ripped into his back, spun him around, and then tore through his midsection. Dominic Perna, who unwittingly made himself an easy target by standing under a streetlight, suffered shotgun wounds to the chest and abdomen. Andrew Kostitian was not part of the parade, but rather ran to the intersection when he heard the gunfire, for he knew his daughter was somewhere in that crowd. The shots to his abdomen lacerated his spleen. He lingered into the next day before succumbing to his injuries. During the siege, several people took refuge under the porch steps of the Immaculate Conception Church, and William Fork was one of them. During a lull and believing the shooting to be over, Fork left his hiding place to check on the condition of his injured neighbors. A gunshot rang out. The bullet found its mark and lacerated Fork's liver, stomach, small intestine, and kidney, leaving massive internal trauma. His suffering would have been downright inhumane. Shots seemed to come from everywhere, and no one was spared. Even two teenage girls fleeing for the safety of a nearby home were shot in the legs as they ascended the stairs. Several other women, including schoolteacher Irene Condor and Frank Fiorella's daughter, were shot in the legs or hips or both. Edward Vespucci was shot in the head. He survived, but the bullet remained lodged in his skull for the rest of his life. Drugstore owner John Saladego was also shot and hospitalized. Mary Dvorak, who mistakenly thought she could run from the carnage, was shot in the right side of her right foot. The bullet passed through her blue leather dress shoe, then her nylon stocking. It traveled through her flesh and bones and the stocking and shoes opposite sides before exiting. Both the shoe and stocking were collected as evidence and presented at trial. These items were forgotten even by the Pennsylvania State Police 
until I found them in a dust-covered box during the research for my book. Investigators calculated that 26 people were injured in the shooting, but it must have been a daunting task to discern the wounded from the bystanders, many of whom were unharmed but splashed with the blood of fellow parade marchers. Even the American flag lay on the ground dotted with tiny holes left by the deadly shotgun pellets. Nothing was spared from the hail of gunfire, not brick, nor sidewalks, nor windows. Coroner John Daly reported that he had removed both rifle bullets and hundreds of shotgun pellets from the bodies of the dead. He also found what are known in police parlance as through-and-throughs, bullets that entered and exited the body, leaving only a gaping hole behind. By the time the first police finally arrived, the firing and chaos had died away. The only sounds were the moans of the wounded and the wailing of the dead men's survivors. But as shock and confusion faded, anger grew, and soon there rose a more organized cry, the call to dynamite the Bruno home. Although hard-pressed to maintain it at times, police formed a protective ring around the Bruno's brick fortress. Officers entering the home were shocked at the arsenal in Joe's upstairs bedroom. There were three rifles, three shotguns, six revolvers. Ammunition included 96 12-gauge shells, 218 32 caliber bullets, 125 caliber bullets, and 75 351 caliber bullets. Even the drawer of the downstairs sewing machine held a bullet. 19 spent shotgun cartridges littered the bedroom. More weapons and ammunition, including an unloaded 12-gauge Winchester pump rifle, were found in the apartment of Paul Bruno. As the investigation progressed, Joe's arsenal grew to further include 13 sticks of dynamite, more shells, and additional firearms. Sometime after midnight, when Election Eve officially passed into Election Day, the rain started. By the relative safety of the light of dawn, Joe Bruno and the other occupants of his home were, under armed protection, ushered into waiting police cars. There was no sunlight when the rest of the town woke, but the sky was sufficiently bright for residents of Calaire's to see the puddles of mud and blood standing in their streets. The lust for revenge was palpable, but not the kind that the Bruno clan had dispensed. The retaliation Calaire sought was the kind that would hurt Joe Bruno far more than bullets ever could, and it was delivered at the polls. Of the 686 votes cast on November 6, 1934, only 24 went to Bruno's Republican candidates. It was a devastating defeat for a man who came to expect and enjoy 89% of the small town's support. A month after the massacre, another political blow befell Big Joe. The Schuylkill County Court decided once and for all that Bruno's opponents had indeed won that fiercely contested 1933 Klein Township election. This meant that Joe's teachers were out. Worse, he was ousted as school director. His son James' position at the First National Bank in McAdoo was terminated, and Joe was asked to resign from the bank's board. Regardless of what the upcoming trials would decide, 
the people of Klein Township had already passed judgment against the fallen Republican leader and his family. Joe still had a few tricks up his sleeve, but he would never regain his political or personal capital. Today, the story of the Kellers massacre is still shared between family members and neighbors, but despite five dead and 26 injured, it's still relatively unknown by the rest of the nation. But we who know it must ensure that the Kellers massacre of 1934 is never casually dismissed as the bloody and predictable product of the dirty game that is American politics. Well, that's my story about the 1934 Calaire's Massacre. I hope you've learned something new, if sad, about America's murderous political history. To learn more about my book, The Calaire's Massacre, Politics and Murder in Pennsylvania's Anthracite Coal Country, visit my webpage, stephaniehoover.com. While there, send me a message or connect with me on social media. Until next time, this is Stephanie Hoover thanking you for listening and reminding you, it's a crazy world out there, so please be well, be happy, and be kind.